remain standing, if you will. Please grab your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And we're going to begin our study today in verse 26, but I want to go back to verse 25 to kind of set the stage a little bit with you as we go through the portion of Scripture this morning. And he released the man, that's Pilate, that they, or Barabbas, that they were asking for, for he had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. And when they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, and they placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of the people and the women who were mourning and lamenting. But Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that have never nursed. For they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and up onto the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? You may be seated. Today, as we continue in this narrative of the crucifixion of Jesus, the passion of Christ, I always want to kind of encourage you that when you get to these sections, as you go through the Gospels, that you don't just rush through them. We have a tendency to sometimes just read and not really meditate upon what we're reading and really think through. And so I think my job as a pastor is to make or to help you think through what is taking place because I don't ever want this account to be too casual. I don't want it to be somebody, oh, yeah, 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 I see, uh, he went to the cross, he died, and all this stuff. No, 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 this is a very big deal. This is a very big deal. In fact, all four Gospels, when you come to this section, this is the crescendo of the whole story. This is where everything comes to its beautiful conclusion when you see what Jesus has done for us. In fact, it is the Gospel in itself. Without the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, we have no Gospel. It isn't just a story about Jesus who comes and teaches good things and does miraculous things. No, this is about the one who came, who lived, who suffered and died on our behalf and then was risen and then ascended to the Father. That's the story. And we as believers, we have to live in that constant hope knowing that this is the, the future that he has for us as Christ has suffered and died so we follow after him and knowing what he's done for us, that he has a future for us. But I want to go through the context real quickly with you so you can catch the flow of where we are. As we said at this point in this particular study, it is now early morning on Friday. The day is Passover. It had begun like 14 or 15 hours earlier at sundown. Remember, the Jews, they go their days from sundown to sundown. So it would have actually been Thursday night or Thursday evening when they had the Passover meal. But for Jews, it was Friday. It was the evening of Friday as they gathered together, Jesus and his disciples, and he began spending these last moments with them. 
There they were as they sat around and reclined at the table that Jesus, if you saw, remember that he broke the bread, he poured out the wine, he gave it to his disciples, and he simply said to them, from this point on, this broken bread and this poured out wine is to serve as emblems of remembrance of what is about to be done for you. He is saying that these things, this blood and this bread is about to shed, that he's going to shed for you is going to be for the forgiveness of sins. That Jesus himself is about to become God's sacrificial lamb. And these emblems are to remind us, even as we're going to take them this morning, and everyone who follows after Jesus of the establishment of the new and the better covenant that has been given to us by the blood of Jesus that is not contingent on the obedience of man, but is contingent on the obedience of Christ and what he has done for us. So during this time in the upper room, we saw that Jesus, while he was there, he predicted some pretty hard things. He predicted with them that, you know, one of his disciples was going to betray him into the hands of his enemies. He predicted that all the other 11 disciples were going to fail him that night, that they were going to flee from him. And he specifically addressed Peter and he predicted to him that before morning's time, he was going to deny, deny even knowing him three times. And we saw then that scene as Jesus led his disciples from the, from the upper room, out of Jerusalem, down into the Garden of Gethsemane at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And there, if you saw Jesus, he commissions his disciples to pray. He goes on a, a little bit farther and he prays by himself. And the Bible says he agonized in prayer. He agonized in prayer. He was, he was at a point of breaking. It says it was so intense that he actually shed drops of blood or sweat drops of blood coming out of his pores. Meanwhile, the disciples we saw, who had been not too far away, they found themselves submitted to the will of their flesh as they continued to drift off into sleep. Then, in the wee hours, in the midst of the night, the enemies of Jesus we saw, led by Judas, they approach the scene with their swords, their spears, their torches, and they take Jesus under arrest. And they finally have this man they've been after for so long. And of course, Jesus, as he moves along, we find that he, he is led up to the house of Hannah's who is the high priest recognized by the Jews who had been displaced because of fear of his power and control over the people. And there he stood trial before Annas. After he was done with Jesus, then of course Jesus was led to stand trial before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. That's the supreme body of religious leaders. He stands now before Caiaphas, who is the high priest appointed by and are recognized by Rome, and there they search to find some crime that they can charge Jesus with under Jewish law that they can put him to death. And we saw that it was Jesus' claim to be the Son of God that they ultimately charge him with a charge of blasphemy, a crime that is worthy of being stoned under Jewish law, but only if it is true. Now, keep in mind, people, the religious leaders that night had broken a great multitude of their own laws in the process of getting to Jesus. They were law breakers. 
But they had a problem, or they actually had a couple problems. The first is this, that even though they could charge Jesus with blasphemy, a crime worthy of death under Jewish law, they had no legitimate right to, to execute Jesus under Roman law. And thus, they needed to bring Jesus before the authorities of Rome. They would have to lay a charge against Jesus worthy of the death penalty under Roman law. And to beat all that, time was running out. You see, soon it was going to be Sabbath, within the next 10 or 11 hours. So to accomplish their goal, they had to bring Jesus now to Pilate. They had to lay their charge. They had to try, convict, sentence, and execute Jesus before sundown, which is now about 10 or 11 hours away. From there, we told, they led Jesus to the praetorium to stand before Pontius Pilate. And he was, he was taken for Pontius Pilate, the governor over Judea. Remember, we saw last week that he already despised the Jews. The Jews despised Pilate. However, Pilate was already under tremendous political pressure to appease the Jews, lest his actions somehow lead to unrest in Judea, which could cost him his role as governor of, from Rome. So the Jews come and they level their charges against Jesus. And they basically say, well, he claims to be the Christ, that he is a king. And as such, he's now a threat to Rome because we all know that Rome, there's only one king, it's the emperor himself. Secondly, they charge Jesus of, of, of uprisings and, and, and uh, charging people to not pay their taxes to Caesar, which was a bold-faced lie. And thirdly, they said he's stirring up unrest all over Galilee. Everywhere he goes, he's stirring up trouble. And as you saw last week, it was true that there was unrest everywhere that Jesus went. That because so many people were coming to him who needed him, but not in the manner of which they say. So Pilate knows. He knows from the very beginning that he's being played. He understood he was being manipulated to serve their interests. The religious leaders were jealous of Jesus. So having heard their charges, Pilate declares Jesus not guilty of a crime worthy of death. But we saw the religious leaders didn't let it go. They were persistent. So when Jesus learns that Jesus is a Galilean, he, he thinks he finds a way out of the, the dilemma that he is in. And so he sends him on to Herod, the Tetrarch over Galilee, who happens to be in town himself for the Passover. So Pilate sends Jesus to stand trial before Herod. Now the Sanhedrin come before Herod, and they again lay all their charges against Jesus. This is now a second trial, or third trial. And Herod knows he's being played, just like Pilate. And so he questions Jesus for a little bit of time. Uh, Jesus, we learn, doesn't say anything in response. But he, too, comes to the conclusion that Jesus is not guilty of any crime that is worthy of death. So what Herod does is he had Jesus punished. And once again, Jesus is mocked. And once again, you know, they place a, a royal robe on Jesus to send him back to Pilate. And so ultimately, Jesus goes back to Pilate now one more time. And once again, Pilate examines him. And one more time, Pilate officially declares Jesus as innocent of any crime worthy of death. But the council remained insistent and even hostile. We saw how Pilate, again, tried to alleviate his problem by offering up a prisoner of the people's choice, assuming that the people would choose Jesus to be released to them. 
But rather than that, we saw that the religious leaders, they instigated the crowds crying out for the release of Barabbas, a man who is truly guilty of insurrection and murder. And so when Jesus, you know, the, the crowd agitates, they come and they begin to scream out loud, crucify him, crucify him. We've got to crucify him. And the people were wound up. And again, Pilate for the third time declares before all the people that he finds Jesus not guilty of any crime, not guilty of any crime that is worthy of death. And we're told the crowds instigated by the religious leaders only got louder and louder and louder, crucify him, crucify him, threatening to even charge Pilate himself as an enemy of Rome if he lets Jesus go. And so finally, Pilate realizes what looks like a potential riot is about to take place. He caves into their chance and their will, and he sets into motion the sentence of Jesus, publicly washing his hands of all of his own guilt. And there Pilate releases Barabbas, the truly guilty one, the sentence, and sentenced Jesus, the innocent one, in his stead to death. And there you have this beautiful, really, analogy or picture illustration of the just for the unjust, of the one who is just being sacrificed for the sake of the unjust. And really, this release of Barabbas here and the sentence of the, of the, of the innocent Jesus really does serve as a smaller illustration on a much greater scale as we're going to see Jesus next week on the cross of what is called substitutionary atonement. This is where one suffers for the guilt of the other. When one willingly substitutes themselves to suffer the wrath and the punishment that is due someone else. And we have this wonderful picture of this in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says, Paul writes, He made him who knew no sin, innocent, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So at this point in our study, the verdict is in. Jesus is now sentenced to be crucified. And this is where Luke picks up his study here in verse 6 in the narrative when he now have Jesus on the road to Calvary. In verse 26, when they led him, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, and they placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. Now, if you go to Israel today and you go to the old city, and some of you have been there with Janet and I over the years that we've taken trips, you can walk a path that is commonly called the Via Dolorosa. And it is described by the people there as the, as the way of suffering or sorrow or grief, which is the same pathway that Jesus had taken when he made his way to Calvary. And I always think it's kind of fascinating to walk the Via Dolorosa. However, I don't think it's really quite exactly the same route that Jesus would have walked 2,000 years ago. We don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus was crucified. And what we do know is that the Romans used to make sure that crucifixions were as public as possible. They wanted to have a public spectacle for maximum impact upon those whom they rule. So they wanted to set out a warning of anyone who thinks of rebellion or insurrection. So they would have taken Jesus by the longest route 
the most public route to Golgotha, the place of execution outside the city. Now, Jesus would have been led on the road to Calvary by a Roman soldier who would have gone before him, and he would be carrying a placard which kind of read the charge or the offense or the crime of the one who's being executed. And he writes it here. John tells us that he wrote it in three different languages, in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. And the inscription read this, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of Jews. This was the crime. This is what it comes down to. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, John's gospel tells us something interesting. He says that when the religious leaders saw that placard, they were infuriated because of what it said. They said, no, you need to rewrite that to say Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews. But Pilate refused. And he left it as it was. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And this whole thing, he said, God's in control. There is the charge so bold. Jesus, king of the Jews. So Jesus begins to make his way to Calvary at some point along the journey, we're told here, that he was so weak and physically and even emotionally exhausted that he fell under the weight of the cross. See, up until this time, at this time, a Roman soldier who was present would have called out and demanded that a passerby pick up the cross of Jesus and follow and carry it behind him on the way to Calvary. They had the authority under Roman law to anyone who is roots, if they, if they demand something, they were to follow. So we see here this picture of Jesus. We often think of him dragging the cross, maybe like that kind of a cross here. But Jesus, we don't know. It's more likely a cross beam that's called the patabulum. And it's a cross beam that would weigh sometimes up to 100 pounds where they would literally tie it to his arm. So it was, it was very, very heavy. But I want you to think with me why Jesus would have succumbed to the weight of this cross. You know, he had already gone through a sleepless night. He had not slept all night long. It is now morning. It's been an emotional and an exhausting last 24 hours. It was so intense, again, we saw that when he was in the garden that he began to sweat drops of blood. And after his arrest, that he was taken to Annas, and there he was physically abused. It says they beat him with their fist. They slapped him around. They mocked him. They tied, blindfolded him, and began to say, well, here, you tell me who. You prophesy who hit you here and who hit you here. Was it me or was it me? Who is it? And they made sport of Jesus. And finally, we saw that when he was taken to Herod, that Herod sought to appease the Jews by having Jesus punished and then released back to Pilate. No doubt Herod had had Jesus beat himself. They slapped him around again. They mocked him and they scorned him and they put on this mock royal robe upon him because he's a king after all. And then they sent him back to Pilate. Now Pilate, when he finally caved into the will of the people and turned Jesus over to be crucified, we are told of a great deal more of abuse that for some reason Luke does not tell us about, but it's important to understand, to really understand why Jesus is in the shape he is. In Matthew 27, verse 26, then he, Pilate, released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. 
And then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and they gathered the whole Roman cohort around him and they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him saying, hail, king of the Jews. They spat on him and they took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put on his own garments back on him and led him away to Calvary to, to be crucified. Notice what's already happened. With all the other things, Jesus has been scourged. He has been flogged. The flagellum or the flogging here it was so severe in itself Pilate had him tortured. This was his punishment. Remember, Romans, when they used these punishments, they did them for maximum impact. In other words, we want to send a lesson to anyone who would dare challenge Rome. So they would take the criminal, and they would bend him over, they would bind him with his flesh exposed, and there they would scourge him. It was kind of like a, a cat of nine tails. Strips of leather with bits of, of lead and bone intertwined in it, and it would literally rip the flesh right off of you. It would make your, down to the bone, you'd look like hamburger once you've been dealt with this beating. And some producing such deep wounds, it would even at times even cause death itself. The contemporary Jewish historian Flavius jo Josephus gives the account of flagellation carried out in Palestine where strokes were delivered with such strength that they exposed at times the victim's innards. It was that intense. Unlike Jewish law, which had a maximum of 40 lashes, Romans had no limit. So we don't know the amount of, or how much Jesus was, was scourged. And then when you think of this, think of all the blood, the blood that Jesus would have lost already. Think of what he's already gone through, the body weakening. After his scourging, we're told that he is publicly humiliated again as the soldiers strip him of his clothing. And they put on a mock robe on him, no doubt the same robe given by Herod himself. And in mockery, they crowned him with a crown, not of gold, but a crown of thorns, believed to be one to three inches long. And unlike the traditional crown, which is depicted by an open ring, it's believed that the crown of thorns may have covered his entire skull. The thorns are interesting when you think about them, when you consider that way back in the beginning when Adam was cursed, that there was something had to do there with the thorns. Genesis 3:17. cursed is the ground because of you and toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you and you will eat the plants of the field. You see, the curse is in the thorns. Then they took the reed and they began to place it in his right hand to mock him as a mock scepter, if you will, the symbol of a king's authority. And in mockery, they get down on their knees and they began to go, hail Jesus, king of the Jews. Hail Jesus, king of the Jews. They're just mocking and mocking and mocking and mocking. And he's a bloody mess and they spit upon him. They beat him on the head and the, driving the thorns deeper into the scalp. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 50, verse 6. He says, I gave my back to those who strike me, 
and my cheeks, my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard and I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. And Isaiah 52 describes it like this, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man for his form more than the sons of men. He was marred beyond human likeness. So beat, so bloody, so tortured already. And the point you can see here is that all these things happened within just a few hours before he is taken to his crucifixion. By the time he is forced to make his way to Calvary carrying his own cross, he had endured all these things already. He had already suffered a tremendous amount of blood loss. And on top of all the abuse he suffered, he's more likely placed this crossbeam of 100 pounds on his shoulders. They would have tied his hands. Now you walk your own way to Calvary. Maybe we can better understand why it was on the road to Calvary that Jesus fell under the weight of the cross. I mean, at the discretion of Rome, they could call upon any Roman citizen to act in accordance with their will and their desires. So comes along this man by the name of Simon of Cyrene, and that would be modern-day Libya. It's about 800 miles away. This may have been his one and only lifetime pilgrimage to Jerusalem to observe the Passover, and he happens to come at the right place at the right time there where Jesus has fallen under the weight of the cross, and there some Roman soldier says, hey, you, you come over here. You're going to take his cross for him. I don't think he has any idea what's even going on. And they force Simon to carry and bear the cross of Jesus as he would walk behind Jesus. By the way, if there's ever a good visual of a disciple, I think it's right here. It's a graphic illustration. You see, back in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus had said this. He said to them all, he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Here's a picture. Luke 14, 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now we do know this, that Simon, of course, was forced. But we, as we come after Christ, we do so willingly. And I find it always interesting that Jesus spoke about the cross long before he ever bore the cross. Because he knew that was the pathway. The disciple is called to follow after Jesus in humble fashion that we're to bear the cross of Christ leading the way. In Philippians 1.29, it says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. You see, at first, I can only imagine what Simon must have thought. I think he must have resented it. I think he must have resented that Roman soldier who forces him and abuses him with his authority to do this terrible, nasty job of carrying this hideous man's cross. And he must have even, maybe even resented the criminal whose cross he was bearing. And you might have questioned, well, is it a matter of being at the wrong place at the wrong time? Or was it, as I believe the text indicates, this is a divine appointment for Simon? 
Interestingly, Simon is described in Mark's gospel as Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, whose names are presumed to have been understood by the early church leaders as one who is revered among the church. In fact, when you get to Romans chapter 16, verse 13, as he's giving his farewell, Paul says, greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. In Acts 13, now there were in Antioch in the church that were there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, he was called Niger and, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen and all who had been brought up and Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. In other words, he's describing these individuals, but one of them is named Simeon, who's also a derivative of Simon, and he's from Africa. He's a man of dark complexion from Niger. It's highly possible that Simon, this very Simon, is named in the gospel because he becomes a key figure who first brings the gospel to Africa. It's a beautiful story. It turns out Simon was at the right place at the right time because God had a work for him to do. You know, so often it's true that God uses circumstances in our lives that we think, man, this is a terrible inconvenience. There's no way this can be anything good. And you look back later and say, oh, Lord, look what you did with that. Look how you use that. You see, what I think is this. I believe that in all the days of Simon's life, that he would never, ever forget the grace that was bestowed upon him for the privilege that he had in bearing the cross of Jesus, ordained by the gracious hand of the Lord. So on the road to Jesus in verse 27, and following him, was a large crowd of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. As we have said, Roman executions were meant to have maximum impact upon the public. So it was customary that they would have those who would follow along, those who were condemned, there would be lamentations, the women would come and they would cry out and there'd be mourners who would mourn the way and they'd look upon Jesus and they saw him in the state that he was in. And here comes this group of women who Jesus takes note of who are beholding his suffering and they see him and they find sympathy and grief with him. And seeing them, Jesus, now he's on the road, he's been beaten. He can't even carry his own cross, he's so weak. But he looks over to them and he gives us our only discourse that we have of Jesus on the way to Calvary. And he says to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Essentially what he is saying, woman, don't weep for me, but weep rather for those who would reject me and the consequence of what it means to reject me. Now, last week we saw at the conclusion of Jesus' trial before Pilate, for fear of a riot, he violated his own conscience and that he willingly released Jesus, whom he had already declared innocent three times, over to be crucified while at the same time releasing a man who was truly guilty of the crimes that were leveled at Jesus. 
And we saw in our study that from Matthew's account that he took the water, he washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Isn't that interesting? This was the plea of the people. Listen, we know what you're doing. His blood will be on us and our children. So in prophetic fashion, Jesus is he's making his way to Calvary, making his way, he's in suffering, and knowing the great consequence of what is going to happen now to this people because of this rejection, he looks at them and says, blessed are the barren, the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed, and they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us. Blessed are the barren? I mean, normally Jewish custom said just the opposite. Praised motherhood. Stigmatized being barren. But Jesus is saying the coming judgment that is coming is going to be so horrific that barrenness, which is normally considered to be a reproach in Israel, would be considered a blessing. It would be so severe, he's saying, that it would be far better for a woman to have an empty womb and breasts that never nurse, lest they have to endure what, the, the time that is going to come upon this place. And what Jesus foresees here is he looks prophetically in the near future and he sees the consequence of what is going to happen. It will be the day of lamentation. Listen, the coming judgment, he's saying, is going to be so unbearable that those who are living at the time are going to plea, quoting from Hosea chapter 10, verse 8, they're going to plea for an earthquake to cause the mountains to fall on them. That's severe. Now, we've seen this in our journey through Luke. We saw this in Luke chapter 13. If you remember, at one point, Jesus was so grieved as he foresaw the course of the religious leaders and his own rejection, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, he says, Your day, your house has left you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you'll say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Luke chapter 19, Jesus again alludes to it. It says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things that would make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. In Matthew chapter 23 or 22, Jesus gives a parable about the wedding feast. And how this benevolent king sends out an invitation to all in the kingdom to come and, and enjoy this wedding feast of his son. It says, but that many refused to come, would not come. And as a consequence, Jesus said of that in Matthew 22, 7, but the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and he set their city on fire. Later on in Luke 21, that prophetic section, it was on this very same week of his crucifixion, that Jesus began to prophetically speak about what was about to take place. But in one section of his prophecy, he said, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies and recognize that our desolation is near, 
Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive to all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And while the prophecies we saw in in Luke 21 relate both to near and local judgment of Jerusalem as far as it goes on to judgments that will come upon the whole world, he gives a very clear warning of what's going to take place in Jerusalem at that time. We know historically that within a generation of Jesus' warning, In A.D. 70, General Titus did lead an army against Jerusalem. They did surround the city. They did besiege and cut off all its supply. This resulted in such a huge famine that was so severe that there were some who succumbed to eating the flesh of their own children, just as prophesied back in Deuteronomy 28 in the curses of disobedience. Eventually, they broke down the walls, they burned the temple to the ground, and they turned over every stone to collect the gold that was in it, just as Jesus prophesied. They leveled the city, and it was given over to the Gentiles, it says, until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Josephus said that a person who visited the site after the destruction would never be able to believe that on the site of where the temple was, that it ever stood one of the most magnificent structures of the ancient world. Like the Babylonians, before them, God used the Romans and his swords to execute his wrath as the consequence of their rejection of Jesus. And we're told that in that whole scene, 1.1 million Jews were killed in conflict, the surviving people. Surely, The Bible says, he came to his own and his own received him not. And there was a great consequence of judgment. Look what Jesus says here in verse 31. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? If they do these things when the Son of God is with them and among them, what will happen to them when he is gone? When it's dry. If this is the way the guilty would judge the innocent, what will the judgment be like for those who are guilty? What will the judgment be like if Jesus, the Son of God, who is innocent, suffered so greatly at the hands of the guilty, surely there's a judgment that awaits the guilty who reject the Son. In a broader sense, the warning is set, really, for all who would reject the love of God and His giving of His Son offered up so freely to suffer the wrath of God that is due us. But the point that you can see in all this is this. Jesus was destined for the cross. This was God's plan all along. Nothing took Jesus by surprise. There's nothing that happens, the suffering, all of it. He walked into it. He knew. He knew it all awaited him. Remember when Peter made his great confession back in chapter 9 of Luke that Jesus was the Christ? 
Jesus warned them and instructed them not to tell anyone, saying, the Son of Man, he said, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Before Jesus and his disciples ascended up to Jerusalem for that final Passover, it says in Luke 18, 23, he took the 12 aside and he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished for he will be handed over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But the disciples says, understood none of these things. And the meaning of the statement was hidden from them. They did not comprehend the things that were said. Jesus had clearly told them everything that was about to take place. During this last supper, just hours before, we're told this, when Jesus is alone with his disciples in the upper room, when the hour had come, it says he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I say to you, I shall not again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And this is the point, nothing has taken Jesus by surprise. He comes as the willing servant to lay down his life for you. He knew, he understood what he was going into. And Isaiah's prophecy is so wonderful when you go through it. We're going to look at it some more next week. But Isaiah 53, listen to this. This is over 700 years before this even takes place, it is prophesied, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. And all of us like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned on his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Do you see the significance? This is, there's no other way. And that's why we've said, this is God's love message to the world. I love you so much. I love you so much that I would sacrifice my own son to make a way that you can know me. That whosoever believes in the son should not perish, but have everlasting life. You think God's serious about what happened with Jesus? I do. You see why it's such a serious thing to reject Jesus? I do. Because God has provided a way by which we can know him and love him and receive to ourselves the eternal salvation that none of us deserve. None of us. When you came in today, you were given a communion pack if you don't have one, anybody not have one that would like one, the ushers will bring one to you. Just raise your hand wherever you are. Okay, we have someone over here. This morning, as we take communion, I want you to think about where we are in this passage. Because the broken bread, the poured out wine represent the body and the blood of Jesus and the suffering that he endured for us. 
And it is a testimony, people, that what Jesus did is something we could not do. It is impossible for you to save yourself. When you go through the law of Moses, one thing is made abundantly clear. It's impossible to save yourself by your own good works. But God did it for us when he sent Jesus. The only perfect and innocent one to be offered up as a lamb of sacrifice so that we might live. As Josh comes, he's going to lead us in some worship. And as he does, I pray, just take some moments just to meditate. Jesus, thank you. Not one of us here deserved it. Not one of us. But he gave it to us. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son. Father, we thank you this morning. Lord, I pray in these moments as we spend together this morning in communion. That, Lord, we would do so in a way that is not just a ritual. But, Lord, it's a testimony of our faith that we believe and we trust you. I pray, Father, even now, Lord, as we wait upon you and we worship you, Lord, that you'd meet us here. Our hearts would be prepared, Lord, this morning just to eat and to drink and really say, oh, Lord, we understand. We recognize what you've done for us, not what we've done for you.